All right, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 19, and the title is, How Should We Live? In verses 3 through 9, Peter was communicating to us that we have a living hope in our salvation, and that we should have an associated joy that goes along with that salvation, that we shouldn't be just ordinary people, but we should be people that have inexpressible joy, right? Where that, that, that X factor of joy is who we should be. Now, in verses 10 through 19, he's going to kind of expand the thought of our salvation, not leaving that, but saying, well, this is how we should respond to it. So three main points we're going to make as we move through this portion of Scripture. The first one is found in verses 10 through 12. And here, answering the question of how we should live, we should live amazed. That's point number one. We should live amazed of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, carefully. Who prophesied of the grace that would come to you? Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that, not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things which angels desire to look into. So we should live amazed. We should be amazed. And he, the way he seeks to communicate this truth is he talks about the prophets and he talks about the angels. And that in comparison to them, our experience of what the prophets had and even what the angels have surpasses what they are able to experience in salvation. And so if we have the fullness of this salvation revealed to us, then certainly there ought to be appropriate and a, a appropriate response. We are part of something that is ancient, right? We're part of something that's magnificent. We're part of something that is even mysterious. Not as in like a, a, you know, a mystery movie, but mysterious as in there was truth that was formerly not completely known, but we understand now. And it's been revealed. We understand who this Messiah was, this suffering servant. And we should respond with just joy and thanksgiving and praise. We should not take lightly the awesome awareness we have of the person of Jesus Christ, of his teaching, of his life, of his death, of his resurrection. You know, I've, <clears throat> Rebecca and myself right now, um, we're going through uh, the New Testament in 30 days. So it's like super fast. And um, just, just reading through, listening, whatever works out for each of us on that day. And, you know, as I'm, I'm listening, going through... Um, I'm just like, Lord, I know all of this is so familiar to me. I know these things. I mean, like you, when you're reading or you're hearing, you can finish a lot of verses. You can finish a lot of accounts, and you know where the story's going. You know the next movement. And this is something that should amaze us, is that we have this much knowledge over things that are, were previously unknown, but has been made known to us. And that is Peter's point. He wants them to be amazed at their salvation. In verse 11, he says, and he says the prophets wrote of the coming of the Messiah, right? They, they were talking about his sufferings. They were talking about the glories. If you want to read about some sufferings, here's two Old Testament passages. Um, Isaiah 53, 1 through 4. You can re read the whole chapter. 
But those verses will talk about his suffering clearly. Uh, Psalm 22, 14 through 18. Again, you can read the whole chapter. But these are uh, prophecies of the, of the sufferings that the Messiah would go through. Um, if you want to read of the glories, well, there's many, many passages, right, in the Old Testament. But Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, uh, Daniel 7, 13 through 14, and just dozens of passages that speak of the glories that would come. And Peter is saying to them, the Old Testament prophets, they wanted to know this, but you know this. And he's linking us back to that which has been revealed. This is a point that Jesus made to his own followers. Um, as after Jesus had rose from the dead, he walked with some of his disciples on the road to uh, Emmaus. And as he is walking, we read that he began to preach to them. And he says, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe, and all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things, and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. How awesome would have it been to have had that message recorded. To have Jesus on Resurrection Sunday, to have preached a message and to have heard this. Hey, this is exactly what Isaiah, this is what, the, what David was saying. This is what this, uh, the prophet Daniel was saying. Everything that happened is exactly what he, they said would happen. Uh, but Peter's point here is, but they didn't even understand it. They didn't fully grasp when all of these things were going to take place. Actually, in verse 12, it says, to them it was revealed that not to themselves. So as they searched carefully, as they inquired and said, when are these things going to come? When is the redemption going to come? When is the Christ, the Messiah going to come? When is that seed that was promised back in Genesis 3? When is he going to come and crush the head of Satan and restore things back to the way they used to be? And these were the questions. They said, Lord, will you do it now? Is now the time? Is now the time? And what the Spirit of the Lord ministered to them was, not now, later. Later, And then you can imagine their responses. Oh, man, what is it going to be like when he comes? What is it going to be like when the, that one who's been promised actually shows up on the scene? And yet we know, don't we? Now, we weren't that first generation of believers that got to experience it, but we have a, uh, a thorough account recorded for us in the New Testament of who Jesus is and what he did. And so we are on the side of having... Um, what the prophets ministered unto, we're on the side of knowing. Now we read, moving on through verse 12, that the gospel had been delivered by the Spirit of God through willing vessels. And so when you think about this, remember that Peter is the one that denied the Lord those three times before the rooster crowed, right? And, and Jesus said, you're going to do this. And he said, even if everybody else does this, I will not do that. I'm willing to die. And I, and I believe he really meant that. Because in the garden, when they came to arrest Jesus, he took the sword and he, I don't think he was aiming for an ear in the middle of the night in a garden. I think he was trying to split the guy's head in half. And all he got was an ear. He was a fisherman, not a swordsman, okay? So he gets the ear and the Lord does that miracle and puts it back on the high priest servant Malchus and he is healed. But Peter was ready. I mean, Peter was like, all right, got, a, got everybody out here. I'll fight you all. So there was that, that kind of resolve in his heart and his mind that I'm going to follow you. I'm going to, to the end. 
But then as the night went on, then he began to fall. He began to make a mistake. And, and now, you know, he ends up denying the Lord before a servant girl and says, I, I don't even know this guy. I don't even know what you're talking about. I have no association with Jesus whatsoever. Quit saying these things. And then, of course, that rooster crowed and he had denied the Lord those, those uh, three times. And it just grieved him as he caught eyes with the Lord. And so he writes this. This is the guy who writes verse 12. But to us, the prophets, they were ministering the things which have now been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you. And I can just kind of see him pause right there. As he's either dictating or writing this down. And he goes, I've reported to you who have preached... Who have preached the gospel, and he's thinking about himself and how he is one that preached the gospel. And then he says, By the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven. Because he knew what it was like to try and do it in his own strength and power, and he failed miserably. But then Jesus had told them, You're going to be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. You're going to take this message to the ends of the earth. But before you seek to do that, I want you to tarry in Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. Until you've received the promise of the Father. Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the church. And that very hour, as they inquired of the, the gift of tongues that was being exercised there, and how are they speaking in other tongues, Peter stands up and he says, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, that, the, that God in the last days would pour out his spirit upon all flesh, dreams and prophecies, and this is what you see. And then he goes on to preach the gospel, and eventually what we find out is 3,000 men were added to the church that day. So the crowd was at least 3,000 men, plus women, plus children, and plus those who didn't respond. I don't know what the number is. I think it's pretty safe to say 10,000 people were gathered around. And, and he stands boldly, and he goes on to preach. He says, you've taken with your lawless hands, and you have crucified the prince of life. You've put the prince of life to death. You're the ones that did this. And he speaks so boldly. Well, what's the difference between Acts chapter 2 and him denying that he knew Jesus in a dark you know, courtyard where a servant girl comes up and talks to him. The difference is, he says, by the Holy Spirit. That is the difference. Hey, the gospel does not need me. It is self-sufficient. It is a, a message that is the power of God unto salvation. I don't need to dress it up. I don't need to fix it. It is fine just the way it is. However, God is determined that he not only wants his message, the gospel, which it is to be powerful, but he also wants the messengers to be endued with power. Amen. Both. Now, listen, an unbeliever can preach the gospel and somebody can genuinely get saved because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. But that's not the plan. That's not the way he wants it to work. He wants all of us to be filled with the Holy Spirit and for the Spirit to be speaking through us. You're like, wow, man, that's, that's awesome. That's what I want. That's what I need but I don't have it, then ask. Ask the Lord to fill you with the Holy Spirit and then step out into some place where you'll have to share the gospel. If we only go to the safe places, if we only go to those things where I know there's an escape hatch that's good for me and if it goes bad, I can get out and this is not gonna be a problem. If I only go to the places where I don't need to see the power of God, then guess what? You're not gonna see the power of the Lord. Well, why don't you step out into a, a place 
that causes you to be a little afraid. Why don't you step out and, and follow the Lord in this, right? I'm not just saying go create some kind of circumstance on your own, but go where the Lord's leading you. And then ask for the Lord to show up and watch how he works and watch how he will move and watch how his spirit will come upon you. You've heard me say it before. I don't have a Bible verse for it, but I think it's true. You don't need the power of the Holy Spirit to sit in church on Sunday morning. Anybody can do that. You want to go out there and go downtown and share the gospel with a bunch of people gathered together outside a bar? You probably want something more than just yourself. You probably want something more than just your cup of coffee, right? You're going to want the power of the Holy Spirit to be upon you. And so we have the same opportunity to walk in the fullness of the Spirit as Peter did. And he says, and this is how this gospel that the prophets preached, uh, this is how it is done. And then he says at the end of verse 12, he goes, and the angels desire to look into these things. Things which the angels desire to look into. The prophets inquired, angels inquired. It's not to say that the angels don't know anything. They were at the birth announcement. They ministered to Jesus in, at the, in his temptation. Jesus said he could have called for a legion of the angels to help him. They were present at the resurrection. They were present at the ascension. They will minister during the seven-year tribulation. They rejoice over one sinner repenting. It's not that they're ignorant, but this is something that's so amazing to them, they continue to want to inquire about it. But how about us who know it and have it? Are we amazed? Because this is how we should be living. We should be living with amazement that we've been brought into this grand story of salvation. And look at all you know. I would imagine for a lot of you, some of you, what things I've said, maybe you are new. But for a lot of you, you're going to say, yeah, I already know all that. Good, you know that. I know that too. Now, the problem is, is that it can just become like callous. We can become kind of cold to it. May the Lord stir up our heart to have wonder at the work of the gospel. The next point of how we should live is that we should live in holiness. And this is in verses 13 through 16. We'll begin there, just reading in verse 13. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So he, he's talking about the, our salvation and how should it impact us. Well, this should impact us. The prophets wanted to know. Angels want to know what should be the impact. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober. So there should be a focus about how we, how our, how we allow our mind to go to things and to study them and consider them. There should be that. Now, we gird up the loins of your mind. What does that even mean? Well, remember, um, in Peter's day, they wore long robes, and so if they were going to go to work, uh, if they were going to run, if they are going to go to war, uh, having your legs you know, encumbered so you couldn't stretch out and move, it would impede your, your movement. So they would, there was a way in which they would pull them up, and they would tie them tight, and they would not be encumbered by that or entangled by uh, their robe. And he says, this is what you need to do with your mind. You need to tie your mind up. You need to have your thoughts tightly controlled. There needs to be a sobriety about how you think. And listen, this is something that we all have to figure out how to do it. And this is what I would say if you're like, nah, I don't really worry about girding up the loins of my mind. I'm not really worried about being sober-minded. I never thought about that. Well, you're being commanded to. 
(laughs) You're being told to control your thoughts. And what happens is, if we let our thoughts go in this direction and go that direction, or wherever they want to go, we just, we let our mind go there. The problem is we're going to get entangled. I'm not even talking about sinful stuff. That's, that's another message. Let's just talk about pure distraction. Let's talk about, I'm so into this thing now, I can't focus upon prayer time. I'm so into this, I can't focus upon, you know, any other thought or process. And so we have to learn how to gird our mind. Can you, can you just mindlessly, you know, go through the internet and flip through your phone and spend, you know, all that time and then just put it down and immediately lock onto spiritual things? I can't. I can't do that. Because if I start doing that and I'm looking, then you know what? Now my mind is caught up in all these other things. And to try and now focus upon the Lord, it's like, I can't spend that kind of time. So I know that I've got to gird my mind. And although I I will spend time looking at this or looking at that and figuring out how the dolphins could ever do better. You know, I may look at these things, but you know, really, there's there's a limitation there. Because I know that if I spend too much time that I'm going to get all caught up in that, and that's where my mind is going to be. So we, if we're going to live in holiness, we've got to be focused in how we think. You've got, to be, you've got to gird it up. You've got to be sober. And so that's kind of, in one sense, it's a, uh, we're, we're doing something to not think upon things that will just waste time. But the end of verse 13, it says, and rest your hope. So you're going to gird your, law, your, your mind. You're just going to make it tight. So now what do you put your mind on? And rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you. That's what we think about. We think about the end of our salvation. We think about the day when we meet Jesus. We think about this forever in the presence of God. This is what should be occupying our thoughts. We talked a lot about that last week, so I'm not going to belabor this point. But the hope of heaven should so so fill our minds that we are fully resting on the hope. In other words, we don't have a dozen things we're hoping in. What is it? It's fully upon the grace. That is the dominating uh, thought process that we have. In verse 14, still talking about how to live in holiness. Uh, Number one, be focused. Number two, dominate your thoughts with the the hope of our salvation. Uh, Number three, be free of the world's influence. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance. We lived one way before we came to Christ. And that should all be in the past. That should not be how we're living now. We did that when we were ignoramuses, okay? That's, that's what we did. When you're ignorant, you lived this way for your passions, for your flesh. But now that you're saved, you don't do that anymore, right? That's, that's gone. That's in the past. We now have, are conforming ourselves to our Heavenly Father. We, we're obedient children. We're wanting to be like Him and look like Him. And so we, we are making decisions. We spend enough of our time indulging in sinful desires. But now it's different. Now we're obedient children. And this is the exhortation. Verse 15 and 16 tells us to, be like, uh, to live like uh, our Father. Uh, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy for I am holy. It's amazing to me that how often when you want to talk about holiness in the modern church that many people will, be, will begin to roll their eyes and say, man, just all this legalism. 
wait a minute, why, why is talking about holiness legalism? You want to know what legalism is? Legalism is having uh, a code of ethics to obey without a relationship. Every religion has it. And even a lot of just, you know, societies and, and other kind of social groups, they, they have a code of ethics. And so they seek to live up to this, this code of ethics. But that's not what we're doing. We're not wanting to just, you know, live up to the Ten Commandments or a certain way and then, hey, we check the box. That's not what we're doing. We're living in a manner, a manner that's described so that we might be like him. Big difference. It's a big difference to check the box of doing these 10 things versus being like him. And if you look in your life and you're like, you resist the holiness and being conformed into the image of your father, I would like to ask you, what is it that you find in your heavenly father that's so displeasing to you that you wouldn't want to be like him? You see, when holiness becomes the goal of being like him, well, now we're liberated. Now we're suffering. Now we have a higher goal than just doing this or not doing that. No, why? Because I want to be like him. Because I've been called to be, to be holy, just like he is holy. Be holy for I am holy. And in how much of our conduct should we seek to be uh, changed? It says in all of our conduct. It's not in just some areas. It's not in just that area or this area or the big sin areas. No, in all of our conduct, we should be seeking to be changed and transformed to look like him. He's worth being like. Can't, I mean, he's our father, and we should certainly want to live like him. Look at verses 17 um, and 19, through, uh, through 19. And here we are exhorted to live with reverent fear. Okay, so how should we live? Well, we should live with a fear, a reverent fear of our God and the day we meet with him. Look at verse 17. He says, And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. So we are to live with reverent fear. As you look at verse 17, the first point is that we're going to have to give an account. Each of us are going to have, who are followers of Jesus Christ will have a day when we will stand before him, eyeball to eyeball, nose to nose, and he is going to make us give an account for how we have lived our lives. Say, so, well, wait a minute. Does that mean we might not be saved? No, that's, that's a different issue. We're not talking about, you know, the fact that uh, your sin has been judged in the body of Jesus. There's no judgment to come. That's, that's once for all. So our soul, if we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that is secure in him. And that judgment will never be brought up again. But our works, what we do from the time we get saved until we're in the presence of the Lord, how we steward that time and those gifts and those talents and those resources, that all is going to be brought under review. That all is going to be a, a thing we have to give an account for. And you're like, well, I don't know about that. Well, listen, the, Bible, the New Testament is full of this discussion. Uh, Romans chapter 14, verses 10 through 12. 
But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand, not just pastors, okay? We shall all stand before the judgment seat. That's Bema, judgment seat, Bema, of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess God. So then each of us shall give an account of himself to God. It's going to be very personal, and it's going to be a private meeting with the Lord where you give an account for how you've lived. 2 Corinthians 5, 9 uh, and 10 teach the same thing. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. Why? For we must all appear before the judgment seat, the bema of Christ, that, we may re- that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So as we live our life, sometimes we do the good, we do good things, sometimes we do bad things. And we're going to stand and give an account. You know, for some, it's like, well, I just don't have time. I just don't have time to serve the Lord. I'm too busy. I just, just play that out when you look into the eyes of Jesus. I want you to play that out. I just want you to foresee yourself looking into the eyes of your Savior who said, seek ye first the kingdom of God. I want you to think about this one and when you say, well, Jesus, I was too busy. I know you had things you wanted done, but I had my own agenda. And I, I deemed that my stuff was more important than your stuff, so that's what I did. Now, if, you're, if you're a believer, you know, okay, you're going to get in, but that's not going to be a good meeting with Jesus, is it? You're going to feel terrible in that moment. You're like, yeah, but I don't know. Do any of us ever do anything completely right? I don't know. That's a good question. Let's just say no. <laughs> Let's just say no. There's, you know, you're like, you did the right thing. Um, and, but, you know, you're like, these little brats, man, they are so out of control. Don't, why don't these parents take care of these kids? Okay, kids, we're going to read about Jesus today. And, you know, you're, you're like deriding their parents and their lineage for being out of control. And, and yet you're teaching the kids you got this attitude going on. You were mad at everybody on the road and you're mad at this, you're mad at that, but you come in and now you're teaching these little kids, these third graders, and they're jumping all over the place. And, and, and then, you know, one kid seems to pay attention and it gets saved, but it's not like, you know, there's no bright light that came out of heaven or anything like that. He just prayed the prayer and, and that's it. And now here you are at the Bema Seat of Christ. And he says, hey, I just want to talk to you about, remember how you used to teach Sunday school? You're like, yeah, I hope he doesn't bring it up. He goes, remember that day when you were so upset? You're like, yeah, I do. He goes, and remember how you, you delivered the word, even though you had a bad attitude, and we'll talk about that later, but you had a bad attitude, but still you delivered the word. And remember that one little boy who gave his life to the Lord? Yeah, actually, I forgot. Yeah, I do remember that. Well, he went on to follow the Lord, or she went on to follow the Lord, and became a missionary, and went to this unreached people group, and a revival broke out. They'd never heard the gospel before, but this young guy did that. And I, I want you to see them. Here they are. With all those people from that tribal, you know, and there's this whole crowd stands up and says, I want to thank you for faithfully proclaiming that word. See, I think it should sober us, and that's certainly the context, right? Conduct ourselves here in, in, you know, with fear, right? We're going to give an account, but I, I think God is so gracious. I mean, how much of 
you being saved is because of what you've done. Yeah, not much. Even what you believe in has been given to you, right? You, that faith is a gift from God. So does, God gra- does God's grace stop when we get saved and now it's just all me and my perfect efforts? Oh, no. God continues to be gracious. So I believe there's going to be some surprising moments when we get to heaven that we see how we took our you know, few fish and loaves and we put them before the Lord and maybe we had a bad attitude and yet we did the work and God's grace came in and began to work and move and what did it do and who did it touch? I think we're going to be amazed. Now, it's like, oh good, then I don't have to do anything. Well, yeah, nothing is going to result in nothing. But you know, the idea of not serving because it's, it's not perfect is, hey, God's grace is going to cover you. And he is more concerned about fruit for his glory than he is about you, know, you doing it perfectly. So he takes what we bring to him and he uses it. But we will give an account. Are you ready to give an account to the Lord? So we're talking about here of how we should live, and we should live with reverent fear, knowing that we're going to give an account. Verse 17, we should also keep in mind that this is not our home. This is going to help us to live with that reverent fear. Verse 17 at the end, conducting yourselves throughout your time of stay here in fear. Our time of stay. We're not here forever. We're just passing through. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago and how we're sojourners, we're pilgrims, but that same theme comes up again. Conduct yourselves like you're on a layover. You're only going to be here for a couple hours. Forget about your lazy boy chair. Forget about all of your stuff. You're just going to be in this airport for a couple of hours. And that is the mentality that we should have, is that we are just passing through. Colossians 3, 1 and 2 says, If then you were raised with Christ, and if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have been raised with Christ. Seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. And here it is, verse 2. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. That's what should occupy our thoughts. You know, we're girding up the loins of our mind. We're being sober in our thought processes. We're resting our hope fully upon the grace that's to be brought to us. We are setting our mind on things above. And don't let anybody tell you, well, don't be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. Have you met that person yet? Have you met that person that's so in love with Jesus and because they're so in love with Jesus, they're in love with this world and they want to show the grace and the kindness and the mercy of this world? You cannot be too heavenly minded. Now, some people say, well, you know, you could just be only want to sit around in, the, you know, your room and only read verses and, and meditate and not engage. Well, that's not being heavenly minded. That's something else. I don't know. Heavenly minded is you're going to be like Jesus, And Jesus cared. I mean, who did more earthly good than anybody that's ever lived? It's Jesus. So, yeah, set your mind. Be heavenly minded. And this is how we live in in reverent fear. Our lives should be marked by a fear, a holy reverence, a holy awareness that I'm a finite man and I will stand before the King of kings and the Lord of lords and I will give an account for my life. And so what I do here is so short, lock in. I don't have much time in light of, you know, all of eternity to work for the Lord. I remember reading this quote 
when I was probably 17 years old, and I have kept it. It's, um, it's one of my favorite quotes. It's by E.M. Bounds, who wrote a lot of books on prayer. And it says, great earthly attachments lessen heavenly attachments. The heart which indulges itself in great, uh, in great earthly loves will have less for heaven. God's great work and often his most afflictive and chastening work is to unfasten our hearts from earth and fasten them to heaven. To break up and desolate the earthly home that we may seek a home in heaven. That last part, that answers why some of you are going through what you're going through. It's not for everybody. But if it fits, then receive it. So we need to know that our, our home is in heaven. And I, I gotta be so reminded. I can't get caught up. I gotta live for the day that I stand before the Lord and I give an account. And then lastly, in verses 18 and 19, I, I seek to live in, in a reverence and a fear because of Christ's great sacrifice. In light of how I have been saved, it should impact how I live my life. There ought to be a, a, this, this fear of like, I, I can't mess around because of the great price that's been paid by Jesus to save me. Look at verses 18 and 19 again. It says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct, received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. So he says at the end of verse 17, you know, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing this. So what helps us to, to walk in fear is to know how I've been saved. And I've not been saved with things of no value or things of earthly value. I've been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, not silver and gold, but with the precious blood of the Lord. That's what's redeemed me. That's what's called me into his kingdom. That is what I should be living for. And because that is so significant and it is so important, I'm not going to get caught up in doing anything else because I've been redeemed in a very significant way. The blood of Christ has redeemed me. You know, the blood of the Lamb has a long history in Scripture. And let me just kind of read as we close here from Warren Wiersbe. This is the doctrine of sacrifice, so animals, lambs being sacrificed. The doctrine of sacrifice begins in Genesis 3, when God killed animals that he might clothe Adam and Eve. A ram died for Isaac in Genesis 22:13. And the Passover lamb was slain for each Jewish household in Exodus chapter 12. Messiah was presented as an innocent lamb in Isaiah 53. Isaac asked the question, where is the lamb in Genesis 22:7? And John the Baptist answered it when he pointed to Jesus and said what? Behold the lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world, John 1, 29. In heaven, the redeemed and the angels sing, worthy is the lamb. So from Genesis to Revelation, this theme of the lamb is, is found. And it's, 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 it speaks of the sacrifice that was made. And that was it. Isn't it amazing that God wanted to show his love and so he sent his son to die upon the cross? 
while at the same exact time, God wanted to judge sin, so he sent his son to earth to die upon the cross. God's perfect wrath was poured out at the same time and the same event in which his perfect love was being displayed to the world. That's pretty amazing. Imagine trying to figure out how you could show perfect love and perfect wrath all in the same moment and not be wrong on either side of it. And yet the cross shows us this. You've been redeemed by the precious blood of the Lamb. If you're here thinking nobody cares about me, God cares about you. If you say there's no reason for me to live, well, Jesus died for you that you might live this life for him. And so you have reason to live. You have reason to live for him because he loves you and he's redeemed you. And the more you get focused on what he's done for you and the less you are focused on what's not right in your life, the more peace is going to come to your life and you will be able to live it out. So we ask the question, how should we live? Well, we should live amazed. The prophets and the angels want to dive into the stuff we are a part of. We should live in holiness like our heavenly father. We want to be like him. And we should live with reverent fear. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your kindness and your goodness towards us. Thank you that you've redeemed us with something that's precious. You didn't redeem us with something that it holds no value to you, but you declare your love for us by sending your son. Thank you, Lord. Help us to live in holiness, Lord, We want to be like you. We want to be looking like you by the time we leave this earth more and more. And Lord, we want to be amazed. We want our hearts to be filled with wonder that we have been saved. Thank you, Lord. If there's things in your life where your mind is everywhere and there's no discipline, then decide you're going to walk in that disciplined mindset. If you've not been amazed, then pray for the Holy Spirit to shed abroad on your hearts the love of God this morning. Say, Lord, wake up my mind. Wake up my spirit to the salvation that I'm a part of. Maybe it's some reverent fear that you're in need of. You need to be reminded you're going to stand before Jesus and he's going to review your life.